0: heed thereto, according to thy word, thy word I hid heart that I might not sin against thee, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so Everyone can uh, make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to focus and study this evening, and stay awake and concentrate, take notes, all those wonderful things. And then, um, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that we live in this nation that you have given to us the freedoms that we have, and even though they are not what they once were in this nation, Father, we have hope that we can elect leaders that will see the truth, understand what is right and what is wrong, and that they can reverse the course that this nation has been on. However, we know that our hope is not in politics, our hope is not in political parties, our hope is only in you, and only you can oversee the course of history to bring about a return to the absolutes laid down in our Constitution and the freedoms that we had there, and especially because it is these freedoms that have brought so much prosperity to this country, because in those freedoms we were able to teach, proclaim your word, and people believed it and lived it out in their lives, and that is the cause of our prosperity. And Father, we pray that we might see days like that again. But if we don't, Father, we pray that we might be faithful with what you have given us, faithful in obeying your word, faithful in our witness, both with our lives and in always being ready to communicate the gospel to anyone who comes in our path. And, Father, we pray now as we study your word that we might be encouraged, strengthened by what we study, and that as God the Holy Spirit applies it, we might be challenged to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On Tuesday night, I commented on some of the things that have been going on in Europe uh, relative to uh, uh, Jews leaving various nations in Europe. There are just a few hundred Jews left in uh, Norway. It won't be long before they're all leaving. I mentioned that the chief rabbi in France has said that the levels of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic activities in France are higher than they have been at any time since World War II. Tonight I wanted to read a few things to you from uh, from an article that uh, was just published this last week by Carolyn Glick. Some of you have read her, some of you may not be familiar with her. She's originally American, made Aliyah to Israel, has been involved in a couple of different uh, political administrations in Israel, and is uh, uh, quite quite uh, knowledgeable and informative in her columns. And she talks about Israel and some of the problems that Jews are facing, especially in Europe. And the reason I bring this to your attention is because things like this are generally not known in the U.S. The facts I gave you on Tuesday night aren't known, and most of this is not known. She writes that this week a German doctor in Bavaria, you remember Bavaria, that's The scene, of that's the uh, location of uh, Munich, and the Beer Hall Putsch that the Nazis had back in um, 1923. And this was the area um, in Germany which really supported uh, the Nazis initially. She says, this week a German doctor in Bavaria filed a criminal complaint against Rabbi David Goldberg. David Goldberg's crime was that he performs ritual circumcisions on Jewish male infants in accordance with Jewish law. The doctor's complaint came shortly after a ruling by a court in Cologne outlawing the practice of male circumcision. This law went into effect just a few weeks ago. She goes on to write, The Austrians and Swiss also took the ruling to heart. Notice now we have Austria, Austria, Switzerland, Germany, all involved in this. The Austrians and the Swiss also took the ruling to heart and have banned infant male circumcision in several hospitals in Switzerland as well as in the Austrian state of Vorarlberg. Denmark and Scandinavian governments are also considering limiting the practice of circumcision, which has constituted one of the foundational rituals of Judaism for 4,000 years. Meanwhile, there's a solution. You're going to love this. In Norway, Dr. Anne Linbo has come up with the perfect way to get us out of this artificial crisis. Linbo serves as Norway's ombudsman for children's rights, and she proposes that we Jews just change our religion to satisfy anti-Jewish sensitivities. She suggests we replace circumcision with, quote, a symbolic non-surgical ritual. The arrogance of this people, but this is, see this is how it all started back in the 20s with this, you know, incremental, uh, movements, laws against any kind of, uh, anything that the Jews did. Uh, Glick goes on to write, it's worth mentioning that circumcision isn't the only Jewish ritual these enlightened Europeans find objectionable. Sweden, Norway, and Switzerland have already banned kosher slaughter. How about that? Attacking circumcision isn't just a European fetish. The urge to curb Jewish religious freedom has reached the U.S. as well. Last year, San Francisco's Jewish Communities Relations Council, remember that, Jewish, uh, Jewish Community Relations Council, because she's going to abbreviate that as JCRC for the rest of the article, and you always have to go back. What was that? Okay. Jewish Community Relations Council had to sue the city of San Francisco to strike a measure from last November's ballot that would have banned circumcision if... Uh, if passed. The measure's sponsor gathered the requisite 12,000 signatures and the proposition on the ballot. Circumcising the males under the age of 18 would have been classified as a misdemeanor punishable by a thousand dollar fine and up to a year in prison. Sponsors of the measure measure distributed anti-Semitic materials depicting rabbis performing circumcisions as villains. That's another one of those wonderful things coming out of California. She says, goes on to write, uh, skipping a couple of paragraphs, this state of affairs is even more striking in international affairs than in domestic politics. On the international level, the left's readiness to rub elbows with anti-Semites has reached critical levels. While the Europeans have long been happy to cater to the anti-Semitic whims of the Islamic world, the escalation of the West's willingness to accept anti-Semitism as a governing axiom in international affairs is nowhere more apparent than in the Obama administration's foreign policy. And the American left's willingness, particularly the American Jewish left's willingness to cover up the administration's collusion with anti-Semitic regimes at Israel's expense is higher today than ever before. A clear-cut example of both the Obama administration's willingness to adhere to anti-Semitic policies of anti-Semitic governments and the left's willingness to defend this bigoted behavior is the Obama administration's decision not to invite Israel to participate in its new global counterterrorism forum. The global counterterrorism forum was founded with the stated aim of fostering international cooperation and in fighting terrorism. But for the Obama administration, it was more important to make Turkish Prime Minister Recep Erdogan who supports the Hamas and Hezbollah terrorist groups, feel more comfortable than it was to invite Israel to participate? And who gets, receives more acts of terrorism than Israel anyway? So she goes on. If you're interested in reading the whole thing, which I recommend, uh, because she goes on to talk about some of the issues related to the U.S. State Department and what they, some of their key people have said and done in relation to this uh, is important, you just have to go to Carolyn Glick. That's spelled C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E-G-L-I-C-K, carolynglick.com, and uh, you can find that that uh, recent article. So we're living in times when we see the rise of anti-Semitism. We see the rise today more and more in evangelical churches of an opposition to Israel. I think we have seen the high-water mark uh, of uh of uh, Christian pro-Israel uh, sympathies, evangelical, the, the high point of evangelical Christian Zionism in the last 10 years, and there is a, a tremendous pushback now. There's a film, I, I encourage you to take some sort of SIG medication or anti-nausea medication before you watch it, called With God on Our Side, that came out a couple of years ago, and due to the way they edited things, They uh, took a lot of cuts from John Hagee and other very pro-Israel speakers and and, uh, edited them together and have produced an extremely uh, strong anti-Israel, anti-Zionist documentary. And it's getting a lot of play. One of the largest churches in the U.S., I don't know their numbers anymore, uh, it's Used to be number one, and now probably our our friend Joel down the street has probably overtaken them. But uh, it's Bill Hybel's church up in Chicago, uh, and he has shown that there and promoted it. And his wife and daughter went to this uh, Christ at the Crossroads uh, conference they had in Bethlehem, this pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel conference promoted by a lot of Anglican Uh, ministers that was there back in, back in March. So these things are on the rise and on the increase. And again and again, I see that, that Bible believing Christians who hold to a positive view towards the Jewish people and towards Israel are going to once again shift towards the minority side. It may not come for 10, 15 years. It may come quicker than that. But I think we've seen a course reversal. And the only thing that's going to turn any of these trends back in history is going to be if, 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 if at all possible, if it's not God's sovereign plan for everything just to come to an end because the Lord's return is near, then it's going to be because believers, like everyone here, makes it a priority to be involved in evangelism. I think that is so important. I, the other day I had kind of a one of those uh, earth-shattering experiences uh, in, in, in Houston because we all know that Houston, the Houston that we have today is not the Houston demographically of even 25 years ago. It's changed enormously. The other day I was coming back from, driving back from my dad's in Meyerland there was a bad wreck on 610, and so I came west on Bel Air Boulevard, hit Hillcroft, and came down Hillcroft. And I felt like I had just been driving for 30 minutes to a third world country. And I've been on parts of that the, those areas several times, but I, I just to see it all at one time and realize that if I hadn't have turned at that point on Bel Air, just about every street sign from that point on is in Chinese. Um, you, you realize how this city, large, huge sections of this city, are are made up of of immigrants who can barely speak English, and many who can. The mission. We don't have to go to the mission field. The mission field has come to us, and they're they're next door. On just on my short little street, I've got. Uh, I think the numbers just changed. We had a Vietnamese family move, but we have a couple of Korean families, and just in my little subdivision, but a lot of Koreans are are, are Christians. But we also have a lot of Muslims in this city. We have a lot of of, uh, uh, Chinese. We have a lot of uh, Europeans. A lot of French are here. Uh, There's a a couple of French oil companies here. We have tremendous opportunity to get to know all kinds of people who are from other places who need to hear the gospel. And the only thing that's going to change anything in this country is people learning the truth about the gospel, responding to it, believing in Christ, and learning the Word of God. And as uh, Paul says, uh, how shall they, they hear if somebody, how, how shall they believe that they don't hear? And how shall they hear if they don't have an evangelist to bring them the gospel? He's quoting from Isaiah. And God, it is God's will to use us to, to do this. It isn't just going going to happen. So we live in a world where we sit and we see all kinds of things changing in directions that are uh, not positive. And the only thing that's going to reverse it that's going to have any significance isn't what's happening in in uh, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina next week at the Democrat National Convention or what happened this week at Tampa. That's not going to change it. What's going to change it is people getting back to the Word of God. And if that doesn't happen, all of this other stuff that's going on is just frosting on A very old, moldy cake, and it's not going to help at all. So we need to get into the Word, Romans six, where we are tonight, making our way through this argument. I think most of what of the significant words, words, and exegetical issues that are significant to this passage, we covered, so we can move through it a little a little more quickly. But what we see in Romans six eleven is where Paul comes to a conclusion based on all that he has said in the previous 10 verses. The previous 10 verses state the reality of what God has provided for us. And we know that grammatically because the verbs are in the indicative mood. The indicative mood is basically the mood of a declarative sentence. It just, it just describing reality the way things are. And suddenly when we get to verse 11, we start running into these imperatives, these commands. We've had 10 verses to help us understand what God has done for us, describing all the assets that God has given us. And now in light of that, there are things we have to do in order to, uh, in order to utilize those assets and to maximize those assets and to turn those assets from just things that are potential to things that are actual in our, in our lives. And so last time I pointed up as we looked at the end part of the opening section, the, the parallel argument in uh, Romans 6, 5 through 7, and then 8 through 10, building off of the whole concept of what happened at salvation understanding this radical, non-experiential identification that happens at at the instant of salvation where we're identified with Christ in his death so that a death occurs in in us. There is a death to the old man. And it's interesting as we go through this, as I'll, I'll point out, Scripture says we are dead to sin. It never says the sin nature is dead. The old man is dead, but we're dead to sin, but we still have to recognize that we are dead to sin. And so that's just another reason that understanding the old man as a sin nature is wrong. The old man is all of the things that we were before we were saved, our thoughts, our opinions, our values, our uh, habits, all of those things are we're separated from that. That's the idea, main idea of death is that separation. And so in the left column we have one argument that Paul is stating for if, and we could translate that, since we have been united together with Him in the likeness of His death. So there's a death there. We shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. And the identification with Christ in His death is always related to what doctrine? Justification. Identification with Christ in his resurrection is always related to what doctrine? Sanctification. We're raised to new life. The Identification with death deals with justification. Identification with his resurrection has to do with a different doctrine, the spiritual life. The reason I remind you of that is this is the same kind of thing that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the resurrection of Christ. And it becomes very important to understand that in terms of some other issues in, in, under, in the, the content of the gospel. But the content of the gospel focuses on trusting in Christ as the Messiah, as we studied on, a, on um, Tuesday nights in Isaiah 53, that he's the substitute. He's that, he is that sacrificial uh, lamb without spot or blemish that pays the price for our sins. That's the gospel we believe it's important to believe the resurrection, but the resurrection is not connected to justification. Resurrection, as we see here, is connected to new life and and sanctification and spiritual growth so Paul says, since we 've been united together in the likeness of his death, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrections, that new life we have in christ it 's a future potential in six five viewed as a f- not not after we die, we don't realize that new life after death we realize that the instant we're saved we get that new life and it's a potential and and then he uses a a causal participle there because we know this that the old man that is everything that we were before we were saved was crucified uh, with him for the purpose that the body of sin that's the sin nature that the body of sin might be uh, done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. As long as as we're not dealing with the sin nature in our lives, we're still going to be slaves to sin. But the old man is dead, but we have to die to sin. Just pay attention to that. For he who has died has been declared righteous from sin. See, we didn't die, to, die from sin there, that the death... Was the death of the old man mentioned in six six then in six, eight through ten, we have the, the repetition of this in rela- this form in relation to and applying the conclusion of six seven to, to Christ and our spiritual life, if and we did, or since we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's the abundant life because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer rules over him. Death no longer has dominion over him. Why? Because the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lived, he lives to God. Now, that last verse is important because that sets the pattern for understanding verse 11. If you're looking at a King James Version or New King James, 6.11 begins with the phrase, likewise. Likewise. Uh, It may King James. I mean, a New American Standard may say something else. I don't quite remember in this manner, in such a way. And it's it's taking the verse ten as the analogy to what we are to do. The reality is that Christ died for sin once for all. The death he died on the cross, he died once for all. It's a it was a permanent break. He accomplished something. It's a permanent break. And now he lives to God. And then Paul's going to build on that. Let me skip past these first couple of slides. Come on, there we go. So he comes to 6.11 he says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I think there are some other verses and passages in Scripture that in terms of some specific areas... Of the Christian life are, are arguably more significant. But in terms of the foundation for the spiritual life, I don't think there's a more significant passage than Romans 6 11 to 14. This is so foundational to understand this because it, it's not dealing with specific things we need to learn and do, like confess your sins or pray without ceasing or give thanks in all things to the Lord but it's talking about the mindset that you have to have so that that becomes something more than just something you do every now and then, but most of the time you're out of fellowship rather than in fellowship. If we really are going to grow, we have to capture this mental focus that is here in uh, Romans six eleven uh, to 14. The focus is all, it's all about our, our mental attitude. And we see this, we see a couple of things related to the verb here, reckon, or in some translations it's consider, others say think about it in this way. It is, first of all, it is an imperative mood verb. This means it is a command to every single believer. It's a second person plural command. It's addressed to every single believer. So it's not an option. It's, it's a mandate for every one of us we can't get to what we want which is to experience that the richness the joy the happiness uh, the blessing everything that god promises us in this life unless we do this it is foundational and so it's it's addressed to our volition which means if you don't if we're not experiencing it's not god's fault it's our fault we're not Completing the task that God has given us, we're not following through on this imperative. The second thing we need to see about this is this is a mind, mind-related verb, a mentality-related verb, a thought word. It's the word "logizomai" in the Greek, and it's uh, the noun "logos" is uh, comes from the verb "logizomai." "Logizomai" means to think, to reason, to calculate to utilize logic in something, to add something up and come to a conclusion. All of that is part of the meaning of this word uh, logizomai. And even though in English and in the Greek it's only stated one time, it is the verb for both clauses of this verse. It should read, "'Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but reckon yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord.'" It governs both parts of this. So it is a verb that is related to thought, and it's related as such to our mental attitude. Now, a lot of decisions, if you think about this with me, think about your life a little bit. Go home and think about this. A lot of decisions that we have made in life are decisions that we make because we're influenced somehow in how we want other people to think about us. It may be as when we're younger and we're somehow receptive to peer pressure, and that doesn't mean that we're following uh, the, the latest trend or pop, uh, pop uh, group or dressing or anything like that, but there's two or three people or there may be parents or something, but we want to gain somebody's uh, approval in the sense that we want them to think well of us. So often the decisions we make are made because we want how, of how we want other people to see us, how um, how we want them to think about us, uh, who we, we make these decisions based on who we think we are, the kind of image that we want to project to other people. Uh, sometimes some of us want to think people to think of us as being funny and amusing and lighthearted. Others of us want people to think of us as hardworking, that that in terms of the first thing that comes to their mind is that person's hardworking, they're dedicated, or they're brilliant, they're smart, they're studious. Other people want people to think of them as everybody's friend, someone they can go to uh, if they need help or someone they can talk to. Other people want to be thought of as the kind of person that gets things accomplished and produces things. We all have these different ideas about how we want other people uh, to perceive us and how we want how we and it's based on how we perceive ourselves when we look at this passage god is telling us how we are to be thinking about ourselves spiritually that up to the point of salvation we thought of ourselves one way whether it was conscious or not we thought of ourselves in one way and that person that whole culture of our life related to the person we were before we were saved has been left behind there's this break this separation that has occurred here because that person has been crucified crucifixion means you died so if you say that person has been crucified that person is dead it gets the point across we're separated uh, from from that person now for many of us, we were saved, some, some of us were saved when we, like I was when I was a, a young child. Others of you were not saved until you were in your teenage years or maybe in college or, or a little bit older. And I want you to think about the progress of your life. As uh, for much of our childhood as we were growing up, we should have been learning something about self-control and discipline from our parents. This is usually done through various forms of enforced discipline, whether it comes from parents or teachers or coaches or someone like that, but usually someone was there to try to enforce some kind of, of discipline. And If that was successful, then we became a, a little more effective in what we were doing. We were able to accomplish things, and from enforced discipline, we should have learned something about self-discipline. For those who didn't have that and didn't learn those lessons um, then what they learn is that for life to be meaningful they just give in to every whim every desire every lust pattern uh, every uh, everything they want right then and now because their life is characterized by uh, no discipline at all but Whichever your experience is, whether it's an experience of having learned uh, discipline and self-mastery and a focused life or an unfocused, undisciplined life that just went any direction you wanted to go in, you developed habits. And until the day that you were saved, the day that I was saved, all of those habits were formed from the sin nature. That's what Paul says here. It all came out of your sin nature. And we, had, we adopted a lot of those patterns for, from a lot of different sources. Some of them were genetically uh, influenced. You might not have seen it earlier. You might not have seen it yet. But one day, I mean, every day I get up and look in the mirror. Each day I see my father more and more. You know, mirror, mirror on the wall. I am my father after all. It's scary. It's scary. It really is. Those genetics come into play in a lot of ways. Now that doesn't predetermine us to certain things, but it sort of it, it may shape our certain strengths or weaknesses and how we uh, respond or re- react to those things. But as we grow up, uh, we we learn a lot of these different patterns. And sometimes when we're not disciplined well or we just get angry, I remember hearing this when I was a student teacher for the first time up in uh, up in East Texas. I, I was a student teacher in Garrison, Texas. Anybody here know where Garrison, Texas is? If you blink, you miss it. It had one flashing traffic light at that. I think it still does have just one flashing traffic light. Uh, very, very small. But I remember hearing this phrase, that, well, that child's just acting out. Now, Whatever child psychologists and educators may say about that, there's a, a sense of truth there that, that, that we all act out the lust patterns of our sin nature, every one of us. We're constantly acting out uh, those lust patterns, and prior to salvation, when we're totally controlled by the sin nature, everything that we're acting out, good or bad, is all coming from that core root evil of that corrupt Uh, that corrupt nature. And in the process of that, especially if you have a trend towards asceticism and morality, then your sin nature tricks you into thinking that somehow you control it. And you still think that. Trust me, you do. I do too. More often than we're willing to admit. And long before anything ever really changed spiritually for us, that is, long before we were ever saved, We became the master servants of the sin nature that controlled us. That's what Paul says through all this. We were slaves of of our sin nature. And we did what that sin nature said to do. We we yielded to those lusts. We just did whatever we wanted to do. We didn't know any other way, uh, way to live. And then one day we heard the gospel and we understood it and we believed it. And, every, and what the Bible tells us is all of that, those patterns, all those habits, all of those things that we found made us happy and comfortable and worked for us, even though at times we think it still does, all that, that, everything of that person, the Bible says, that person's dead and gone. We're separated from that person totally and completely, and you're, you're a, you have a new identity. You're a, a totally new person. Something radical has happened. But the thing is we still have those same ingrained now because we've chosen to go down those just like uh, uh, we've chosen to take those paths of action over and over and over again where that's where we feel comfortable is going down those same ruts of ruin again and again and again. And what God tells us in this passage is that we have to realize, we have to come to believe this this is a faith rest drill issue. When it says consider yourselves dead to sin, that means you have to believe that you are dead to the sin nature. When the sin nature is wrapping its tentacles of desire around your thinking so that you really want to do and react or whatever to things in ways you know you shouldn't, uh, the sin nature, you can say no. You have to say, I believe this is a promise of God that on the basis of what Christ did for me on the cross, I don't have to carry through like I've carried through with this for the last 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years of my life. And see, if you don't learn this principle when you're a, a young believer, you don't begin to put it into practice until later, which is true for most of us, then we just get more and more ingrained in those sin nature patterns. And we have to learn that we have to think differently about who we are. That Going back to what I said earlier, we all have these kinds of images and ideas of how we want people to perceive us and how we perceive ourselves. And what God is telling us here is this is how you think of yourselves. You think of yourselves as a dead-to-sin kind of person. That's how you have to think of yourselves, as a person who is completely, has been completely separated from everything that went with that pre-regeneration person that you were, there's been a complete and total break there, and and that break is that death. It's a separation. So that's the comparison here. Starting off with this this first uh, first word in the in the Greek, houtos, uh, which can uh, has a couple of different nuances. It usually means in this way or in this manner. A lot of times it refers to what is about to be said, but there are times when it refers back to what has just been said, and so it's comparing this to, uh, what has just been said in terms of, in terms of Christ. So likewise, you all, and here it's, Paul is talking in, in, in the plural, but it's general a a general application of a universal principle to everyone as a believer. This is what you have to do as a believer in order to uh, have any kind of sanctification in your life. Take your finger, run all the way down to verse 19. Verse 19 Starting in about a third of the way through, it says, "...for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness..." And King James and New King James obliterate what this means, because they translated holiness, but it's sanctification. You present your yourself, your members, for sanctification... If you want to be sanctified, this section from 11 to 19 is telling us the foundational way to think, the foundational focus of our mindset so that we can be sanctified experientially. We're already sanctified positionally, but we have to be sanctified experientially. So this is addressed as, a, as general universal principles to for every, uh, that apply to every single believer. So the command here is to reckon yourselves. Uh, Logizomai, as I mentioned earlier, it's a present imperative. Now, present imperatives emphasize something that is a general or universal truth that should be the standard operating procedure for every believer. This is a universal absolute for every single believer. And so he says, uh, Logizomai, count or think or calculate to reason to consider, to think about yourselves a certain way. You've, you Up until the time that you get a hold of this this principle in this verse, we have different ways of thinking about who we are. What Paul says here is you need to start thinking of yourself as this new creature in Christ. And it's not going to change overnight. You're going to easily go back to the way you used to think about yourself because that's the default position that's been carved into your thinking through how many years of sin nature habit patterns. But you have to change that habit pattern. And that's not easy, but it's possible. It's a lot like someone who has to change the way they eat. Maybe you have to change the way you eat just because you want to lose some weight. But usually that's a short-term result. Other times we have to change the way we eat because of certain medical conditions. Maybe it's high blood pressure, maybe it's diabetes, maybe it's any number of other things, and we have to change the way we eat. And before we heard that news that we were a diabetic, you had habit patterns of eating that you can't do anymore. There's been a break. That person you were pre-diabetic, no longer exists there's been a separation you can't do that and i remember knowing an, uh, an older lady some 30 years ago who was about 65 or 66 when she was diagnosed with diabetes and she had a sweet tooth and she just shot up more with more insulin every day if she was going to go out with her friends she was going to have her dessert and she'd just shoot up with a little more insulin she didn't live but you know about 5 or 6 years later she started really paying the price for that and even though she lived a few years after that she had to she had kidney failure and a lot of other problems because she couldn't realize that she had a once that doctor said you have type 2 diabetes she had a new identity she wasn't the person she was before that and she couldn't live the way she did before that but she didn't want to admit that so she just kept living the same way uh, with just a few modifications, and it was a death-like experience. That's, that's ex- essentially what Paul is saying here. You can keep living as a believer like, you, like an unbeliever, but it's going to be a rotten life for you because you're never going to have the kind of uh, freedom in real life that God has for you and has provided for you, and you have to consider your new identity and, and your new position. So he says, likewise, you consider yourselves or reckon yourselves or count yourselves. It's the same verb here that we have over in James uh, 1, 2, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. It, it, it's, a, it's a term of reckoning or accounting originally. Uh, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. And the idea there is that you're, it's not that you don't exist anymore, that sin doesn't exist anymore, but that you're separated from the sin nature. Remember, I went through a study showing that all throughout this this chapter, when we have sin in the singular, it always refers to the sin nature, that principle of this this body of corruption that we have inherited from Adam, that, that potential for or that inclination uh, uh, for for sin. So we're to, we're now to think of ourselves as separated from sin. That there is this, this break, complete break from sin. And the way this is expressed in the Greek, where he says, likewise, you also, you, if you were to translate it literally, it would say, you also, you reckon yourselves dead to sin. There is the insertion of the second person plural pronoun there, and then the second person uh, emphatic there for yourselves to emphasize the fact that it's eat up to the volition of each and every one of us. Nobody else can do it for us. We can't ride along on anybody else's spiritual coattails. We can't uh, ride along on the coattails of the pastor. Just because we go to the right church that has the right doctrine doesn't mean that we are implementing anything uh, in our own, own lives. So this is the key. We have to, first of all, consider ourselves to be dead, are separated from the sin nature. It's not going to rule us anymore. And on the other hand, positively, we're alive to God. We're not just saying I'm not going to sin. It's that I am alive to God. We're replacing the negative of I'm separated from the control of my sin nature with the positive is that I'm living for God. I've got a new identity as a member of the royal family of God with new assets and new capabilities and a new identity, and I've got to learn how to exploit that if I'm going to have any happiness or joy in life uh, whatsoever. So we are to consider ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord, that life that we have toward God is in Christ, that's part of our assets is being in Christ. Now, verse 11 is the conclusion to everything that has gone before, and then we have a transition paragraph in verses 12, uh, 12 through 14 before we get into the second half of the chapter. And here Paul draws a conclusion. And just to give us a little overview of these three verses, Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it, and it's less. Now, I don't know how he could be more clear. This isn't legalism, by the way. Because if we're going to say this is legalism, then you have to say, well, any command in Scripture is legalism. And, and that's not what makes legalism legalism. Legalism is saying God blesses us because, because of what I do. Not I do what I do because God's already blessed me with every blessing in the heavenlies. That's the difference. The, the, the person who is a legalist is saying, I have to do these things in order to get God to bless me, rather than God's already given me all of the blessings, but he's not going to uh, dole them out to me experientially until I have some maturity in order to be able to handle them. I, ha- I have to develop the capacity for that. So he starts off with the the, the negative, don't let sin reign, don't let sin have dominion in your life, don't let sin rule your mortal body. And he's not talking about uh, uh, sexual sins here, he's talking about any kind of, all sin is usually expressed through our body, anger, resentment, bitterness, gossip, slander, these are all sins of our tongue, and that, that tongue is a, just think about that as you go through this, talking about, presenting our members as instruments of, uh, of unrighteousness. Think about the tongue in gossip. You could even think about your fingers in gossip as you're putting it out in an email. So the broad command, don't let sin have dominion over your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. The lust is the prime motivator in the sin nature. We're not to obey that anymore. And then he says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. So again, it's this contrast. Don't do this. Instead, do this. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but as uh, to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? For sin shall not have dominion. That's a command. He's really saying because sin is not supposed to rule over you. You are not supposed to let sin rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. And there's some great insights into that passage. Now, the key words here is always are your little connective words. Therefore, he's drawing a conclusion. Verse 13 begins with and. So he's adding something to the command of verse 12. He's saying don't let sin reign and do not present your members, but present yourself to God. That third word I've circled, but, indicates the contrast. Uh, and then you have another and. So you have two things there that are positive, and then the conclusion is an explanation. Let's look at the verbs. That first verb, don't let sin reign in your mortal life, is the verb basilio, Basoluo, where we get the, uh, the Russian name Vasily means to rule or means to be the king or to reign. Uh, Do not let sin rule, reign, dominate, govern your life. When you look at your life, does the sin nature control your life? If your answer to that is yes, don't raise your hand, don't walk the aisle, the answer to that is going to be in this passage. Don't let sin reign. Well, how do I do that? That's what the tension is. Do I just pull myself up by my bootstraps and say, I'm not going to do it? That's the frustration that Paul experiences in Romans 7 because he doesn't mention the the help that we get until chapter 8, verse 2, when he brings in the Holy Spirit. So uh, don't let sin reign is a present active imperative. That means this is to be the standard operating procedure. This is your code of conduct as a Christian is that you're not going to let sin govern, rule your life. And he talks about your mortal body. And, the, and it's because the body, I believe the sin nature is passed on genetically, physically. But, but the body is the, he uses that to ex, as, a, as an expression for the whole person. But it's through the body that we express our sin nature. When we're mad, when we're angry, when we gossip, when we have various other kinds of lust, you have money lust. You express that through your body. You have materialism lust. You express that through your hand as it reaches into your wallet or purse to pull out your credit card. Uh, your body is the tool that our sin nature uses in order to bring its lust to completion. So Romans 8.10 kind of connects back to that where Paul says, and if, if and it's true, Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. And what he is saying there, as we'll see, is the body is separated from control of the sin nature, and you've got to not let your body be the instrument of the sin nature. Okay, um, then we get to these next two commands in verse 13, both the same verb. Uh, you've got the, I've got one on the lower left panel and one in the right panel. They're both the same verb, par istemi, which means to present or to offer yourself. It's a term that's sometimes used in sacrifices. One's a pres- the first is a present active indicative, but it's a negative command. So the idea there is, if you want to be able to let sin stop, stop ruling your life, you have to do two things. They're mutually exclusive. You have to stop presenting your members as a slave to unrighteousness, or as an instrument to unrighteousness. And when you stop that, presenting, stop presenting it as an instrument of unrighteousness, you start presenting it to God as an instrument of righteousness. You can't do both at the same time. You have to stop yielding to the sin nature. That's where we get that word yield comes out of this passage in Scripture. You've got to stop saying yes to the sin nature you have to say no to the sin nature and yes to God. Very simple. It just goes back to that what we teach the kids—the two-year-olds and three-year-olds—they've got the yes button and their no button, and that that communicates to y'all too. You just have to say yes to God and no to the sin nature, and 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 do that. That's how you that you stop letting sin govern in your life. Now, another thing that's interesting in this passage is is. The, there's a military nuance to this word of presenting yourself to something. There is a command in the, um, uh, in, in the military, in the um, arms manual called Present Arms. It's a salute. It's that idea. You're presenting your rifle. You hold it out in front of you to your commanding officer for their exam, possible examination. It's used as a salute and other and for other purposes, but it's that idea. It's a there's a military tone to this word. And then there's the word that's translated instruments, and that also has a military sense, so that there are a number of people who are who who take this and fit it into a broader context of spiritual warfare. Because remember spiritual warfare is what happens between your ears. Spiritual warfare has to do with the decisions that you and I make. And so the idea here Uh, Translating it with that sense is: don't present your weapons. Thinking of the body as the expression of your sin nature, your body is the weapon of your sin nature as it seeks to impact the world system. So, if you think about it in that sense, it it, would—it has a, 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 I think, a little more concrete uh, image there. Quit presenting your. your your members as weapons of unrighteousness for sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. So who are we going to serve here is the issue. Who, Who do we want to be the commanding officer in our life, the sin nature or God? As we look at verse, verse uh, <clears throat> 13, don't present, don't offer your members, that is your, the members of your body, your person, as, as instruments or weapons of unrighteousness. The idea to sin is for the purpose of sin, for the purpose of the sin nature. Remember, every time I said that word sin is used there, it has to do with the sin nature For as a, as a weapon for the sin nature but present or offer yourselves to God and your members as instruments or weapons of righteousness for, for, God, for God, for God to work out His purpose in, in your life. And then we get into the last verse of this section, verse 14, says, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Notice it's a parallel and a synonym to the opening verse, don't let sin reign. And then we have another word for ruling, but here it's not a, uh, it's a different word. It's cur, uh, curievo, which means to rule over something or to dominate it. It's a future active indicative, but future active indicatives are used to express commands. You will do this tomorrow would be stated in a future active indicative. Tomorrow morning you will get up at 7 o'clock. That would be stated in a future active, even though it's a command, and it would be clearly understood to be a command. So what Paul is saying here is the reason that you are to not present your members as weapons for the sin nature, but as weapons for God, is because you are not to let sin have dominion over you. That's a command. It's not a suggestion it sort of comes across that way for sin shall not have or should not have it's a strong command sin is not to be, have dominion over you sin is not to rule over you why because you're no longer that kind of a person you are and he says for you are not under law but under grace now this gets into a really interesting phrase what does he mean because that you are not under law but under grace Let me uh, suggest a couple of options for you. What a lot of people think here is that, well, we're not under law. We're not under the Mosaic law. That's what this is referring to here, not law in general or law as a principle or uh, some kind of local national law. It's talking about the Mosaic law. And the issue we need to, uh, the question we need to ask is how is being released from the Mosaic law, how does being released from the Mosaic law free us from the experiential control of the sin nature. How does the cancellation of the Mosaic Law free you from the experiential control of the sin nature? That is how this is usually read. And a few of you are sitting there going, well, just because the Mosaic Law got canceled doesn't mean anybody was any freer. And that's right. And I think that we haven't read this dare I say this, this is almost like profanity in our modern evangelical context, we haven't interpreted this dispensationally. Under law refers to the dispensation of the Mosaic law and under grace relates to the church age. Under the Mosaic law, there was no provision, there was no capacity for freedom from the sin nature. There's no... Ba- how, how does it, How do we become free from the sin nature? When you trust in Christ as your savior... You are identified with Christ's crucifixion in something called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Did John the Baptist experience that? Did Moses experience that? Did Daniel experience that? No, they didn't have that. They didn't have their sin nature crucified with Christ. They didn't. They did not live in a dispensation where that was a reality. They were still under sin, and because they were in the dispensation of the Mosaic Law. But in the church age, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore. We're in a different reality. And because we're living in a different reality, we can have freedom from the sin from the sin nature, but it's not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom to recover when we do sin, but it's a freedom to not sin. And that's Paul's whole argument here. So it's... Um, we have to understand this as a dispensational thing. What's interesting is I was reading through a number of commentaries this afternoon to see how, other, how, how this was handled, and I read through about five commentaries written by covenant theologians, and they're saying the same thing, but they don't want to use that nasty word dispensational. They say that we have to understand that things are different in, in, the, in God's history of salvation. Okay, in terms of the salvation history of mankind, it's different now. See, so they, they, instead of saying dis, it's a dispensational shift, they're saying it's a sal, it's salvation history. It's so much more academic. But it's saying the same thing. It's that something changes with the cross, with the final payment for sin by Christ on the cross, so that believers in the church age have assets and capabilities and realities that nobody prior to, that, to the church age had. And so they stay, under law, they were still in, in dominion and under the power of the sin nature. They're, that sin nature's not power wasn't broken for them in the Old Testament. Because uh, from what Paul says in Romans 6, the only thing that does it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that wasn't there. So we have, we have something no one has ever had before. That's the foundation of our spiritual life. That's why we can say that the spiritual life of the church-age believer is so unique. It's never been like this before. Never prior to the day of Pentecost was any believer, uh, did any believer have the power of their sin nature broken like that? And that's the reality. But we have to get that into our thinking and think of ourselves according to this new identity that we have in Christ. And so that's what Paul's going to develop starting in uh, verse 15, and we'll look at that next time. I'll review this a little bit. I I think that this is some of the most mind-blowing statements in Scripture related to what has happened for for the believer uh, because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that complete break with the person we were before Christ. But we all say, great, I want the end game, which is heaven, but I really am comfortable with all those habits I had before. And I just want to keep living like that. And that's the problem. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Challenge us with it. Help us to understand and to realize, and as Scripture says, to consider ourselves to be dead to sin, that that, those habits, those patterns, those values, that, that person really is completely separate from who we are the instant after we're saved, there is such a radical transformation that occurs, and the most significant of which is that we are no longer in bondage to the sin nature. It's still there. We still have the habit patterns. We still want to act like we are, but the reality is that power is broken, and we need to learn how to live, how to think differently about who we are, and therefore live differently. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.